say what you see is what you get There's more to life than meets the eye They don't believe what they don't understand I've touched your hands, I've felt your side Close enough to whisper, to hear my cry Yeah.
All right, good evening, men. You look full and happy. How was the barbecue? <laughs> I heard the only thing we ran out of was pickles. So what's up with that? Hey, if you want to stand to your feet, we're going to kick this off right tonight. As good as the barbecue was, that's not going to be the best part of the night. The best part is in front of us, and God is here. He's among us. He's going to be moving in some powerful ways. And so I just want to encourage you as we start, just lift your hands and worship. Christ followers have been doing this for a couple thousand years. And I want to encourage you tonight, men, don't hold back. Go for it tonight. Go for it tonight. God wants to hear your voices. Lift your voices. Worship strong tonight. And so God, as men, here we are gathered in your presence. And we love you. And we worship you. And we invite you to come and do whatever you want. We yield to you. And we worship you and exalt you in Jesus' name. And all the men said, amen. Hey, let's worship him. Put our hands together, men. We worship you, Lord. I was so far away. I was so far from home. An ocean between us. A distance too great. Lost on a distant shore. No glimmer of any the horizon, the light of the
are you doing, man, of new life? Isn't it good to worship the Lord? Just want to read a little bit of scripture to you guys. Um, Psalm 32, verses 6 and 7, it says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hidden place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Amen. Everyone who is godly, the congregation of the saints, let them offer up prayer to the Lord. Let them offer up their hearts. Let them offer up who they are and what they have. So if you will, that, that is us. That is us. So let us offer up our prayers and receive from the Lord his shouts of deliverance. Receive from the Lord the preservation and salvation he has for us. Amen. So why don't you take a moment where you are, lift up your hands, close your eyes. I think, I think the necessity, the one thing that we need to do to receive the Lord's shouts of deliverance is to open up our ears and, and be receptive to actually hear his shouts of deliverance. So would you, in this moment, just ask the Lord, open up my eyes, open up my ears, open up my heart, Lord. Let me hear your shouts of deliverance in the midst of my trials and tribulations. Let me hear your shouts of deliverance and let me believe what you are saying to me. Lord, we worship you, God.
Raise your voices. Honor the King. Yes, Lord. That is the sound of victory, isn't it? And, man, I think sometimes we need to be reminded that we're living in a victorious story. The tomb is empty. And it's easy to forget as we get bogged down in daily life and discouraged. We need to be reminded that Jesus won. He won. The tomb is empty. He is risen. And he lives in us through the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that? That you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I look around a room like this, guys, and there's so much variety in this room in terms of your age and your season of life and your vocation. But here's one thing we all have in common. Every single man in this room needs the Holy Spirit. We are all dependent upon the Holy Spirit if we have any chance of fulfilling the plans that God has for each of us. So what I want to do right now, I want to take just a few moments, and collectively I want to pray a prayer that I've prayed over you for years. I've been praying this prayer over New Life Men for years. And it's a simple but powerful prayer. The prayer is that you, as a man, would be continually filled with the Holy Spirit and that you would have the courage to then do what he's telling you to do. That's the prayer. And so as you open up your hands tonight and let's ask him for just a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. He sees you. He knows you. He's crazy about you. He leans into you and he wants to fill you afresh tonight. And so, Father, we thank you so much for the generous gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, fill every man in here afresh. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your fire. Fill us with your peace. Fill us with your joy. Empower us to do the very thing you've called us to do. Now, men, in your own words, just begin to ask him. Repent for trying to do life in your own strength and just begin to ask him to fill you afresh with his spirit, to fill you with his fire. Father, tonight we say that we are so dependent on your spirit. We are so dependent on the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. So come, come Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill us with your joy. Father, teach us as sons to yield to what you're doing. Teach us as sons to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And Father, we just pray for courage. Here's the last thing. Just put your hand on the shoulder of a man next to you. We're going to pray courage over one another. Let's begin to speak courage over one another. Because here's the thing. The Holy Spirit surely comes, and then he calls us to do things that are downright scary. We need men who are spurring us on. So right now, just begin to, to pray courage over the men on your right and left because we all need it.
Father, thank you that you do call us into the unknown. You call us in over our head, and we need courage. We ask for it tonight. Fill every man with the courage to obey and do what the Spirit of God is telling him to do. And we believe that as we walk in obedience to you, God, as we do what you're telling us to do, there will be really, really good fruit. And we will see that fruit, and we will lift our eyes, and we will worship you, and we will praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, all the men said, amen. Well, you guys sounded good tonight. <laughs> hey, let's uh, tell the worship team thanks for leading us tonight. Appreciate you guys. Well, we are in for a treat. This is going to be a really, really rich night. We're going to hear from two amazing men, Pastor Brady and Jimmy Miato. I could say so much about both of these guys. They're, uh, they're great men. They're great leaders. They're visionaries. You know, I will say this. Only one of these two happens to be an Olympian, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'll just let the suspense build and... See if you can figure that out tonight. But this is going to be really rich. So why don't you take just a couple moments, shake some hands, give some man hugs, and we'll continue in just a few moments. In the military, a fire team is the second smallest unit. It's usually made up of four guys, and these are men who are prepared to lay down their lives for one another. They protect and serve and care for one another. They're in the battle together, and they're stronger because they're unified in their strength. God designed us where we're at our best when we're experiencing that kind of brotherhood, where we have other men in our lives, men who are strengthening and encouraging us, and spurring us on towards God. In a spiritual sense, we all need a fire team. And we have fire team groups meeting all over the city. These are groups of men who are being intentional to gather, to worship, to dig into the scriptures, to pray, to do life together. They wanna experience the strength that comes from being a part of a team. 
There is a fire team for you, so I encourage you to check out the list of available groups at newlifechurch.org slash men. Good evening, guys. I can't believe you don't think I'm an Olympian. Right? I can't believe that. Shot putter. Dad bod shot putter. <laughs> hey, uh, I've got a really important question for you tonight. Something super serious. I'm going to get serious just for a moment. But how many of you have finished your bracket? Okay, make sure you do this tonight. How many of you fill it out? Okay, I, wanna, I just need to, like eight of us? Like, what is the deal here? How many of you have picked Duke to win? Come on, raise your hand if, you're think, if you think... You're not rooting for I didn't say you were rooting for them. I said if you picked them to win. All right, anybody in North Carolina? All right, uh, Gonzaga. Yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. All right, I think Virginia. All right. you, know, you, you have no idea, do you, right? Uh, I'm a basketball fan, and don't sleep on my LSU Tigers, by the way. We may cheat, but we're good. And there's, there's, <laughs> there's actually a saying in the SEC, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. So I just want, it's not biblical, but it's, it's, it's SEC, all right? So. Hey, I don't always get to tell you all the great stories that happen in New Life, but let me share just one that happened today. Uh, it, I don't know if you were watching the news over the weekend, but or actually yesterday was in the Gazette and on some local stations that the Crawford House, which is a, a housing unit for homeless veterans, their roof blew off uh, during that snowstorm, that blizzard last week. And we found out yesterday that they were having to take all 14 of the homeless veterans out of that house temporarily to get the roof fixed. And so it was exposing 14 homeless veterans to, uh, to the streets. And so they were in a, they were in a bit of a panic because the only option they had was to put these men up in hotels and it was gonna cost a lot. And we called them today and they said, look, uh, we need about a month's worth of rent for these 14 guys to put them in a long stay hotel for a month. Uh, and I asked how much it would cost and they, told me a number and we wrote him a check today. So we got all 14 of those homeless veterans off the streets. Um, and I just wanna brag on, I just want you to know something about our church and maybe you're new to New Life, but we, we are in the city for the sake of the city. And I wanna brag on, I don't know if Pastor Melton's even here tonight, Pastor Rion, Pastor Melton, if either one of those guys, would you stand up with me? Are they here? They're probably not even here somewhere. Pastor Melton, Pastor Rion. All right, they're not here. Okay, my staff doesn't come to these things. All right, anyway, so, but I, okay, well, anyway, they missed me bragging on them. But anyway, these guys are, they're, they're, they're doing hard work in our city. I just want to brag on them. And I, I, I also want to say thank you for being such a generous church because we get to do things like that because we're a big church and we get to do, take on big projects. I mean, they were, they were desperate. And I was grateful that we got to take care of that first month of a stay for those veterans today. So I just want to brag on you and say, way to go, you know? So tonight, I get to uh, have a, yeah, amen. Tonight, I get to have a conversation with my friend in front of you. This is a guy that I am so grateful that the Lord brought Jim Miato to Compassion International. He's been the president of Compassion six years this month. So I remember when he was announced, I was at the meeting when they announced him, and I was there to cheer him on six years ago in 2013. This guy uh, graduated from SMU, spent a lot of time in Dallas-Fort Worth, went to SMU, uh, ended up getting a degree at Harvard Business School, competed in the 1988 Seoul Olympics as a decathlete for El Salvador, and uh, just has some fantastic stories about that. 
and then led thousands of churches, uh, hundreds of thousands of leaders at the Willow Creek Association before taking on the, the enormous task of leading one of the really super great, I believe one of the most influential, most uh, proficient, most efficient uh, ministries to poor families and people around the world. And we're grateful that Compassion's located in our city. How many of you, raise your hand in here if you work, uh, or you have, your spouse works, or you work for Compassion. Raise your hand real high, brag real high. So look, Jim can see you, okay? Jim's looking at you right there. We'd love to have you, grateful you're here. So I want you tonight to give me a big giant welcome to a member of our church, Jim Miato. Come on up, Pastor Jim, come up, Jim. Have a seat over here. We're glad to have you. So we're just going to, what I told him tonight is we're just going to have a conversation about several things. Uh, as you know, uh, Jim, welcome. First of all, we're so grateful that you're here for taking time out to be with the men of New Life. Um, I, think, I think the first thing I want you to hear is uh, we're going to shape the conversation tonight around a couple of things. One, about what the church and what we can do for the very poor and broken in the country. But your family story is so um, amazing because you were born, uh, to, you, both your parents are from Mexico, they were migrant farm workers who ended up getting their U.S. citizenship. That's the family you were born into. I want you to think about this. The president of Compassion International, who leads one of the greatest organizations on the planet for the poor in our world, his parents were migrant farm workers who believed in him, saw something in, in Jim, and encouraged him to pursue the dreams that were in his heart, and thank the Lord for good parents, good mom and dad that brought you up to love the Lord, to love the church, and <laughs> I love that. Tell, tell us just the story of, of your dad, because your, your grandfather, both your grandfathers and your dad and your mom made some just profound choices that affected you. And I, the reason I'm asking you to tell that story, because there are dads in the room, there are a lot of young, I can look across the room, I know there's a lot of young dads in the room, hmm. and they're making choices right now for, that's going to affect their kids' future. Yeah. So I want you to tell about your story and the, the choices your mom and dad made that affected your future real quick. Can you just share that? Yeah, totally. But before I do that, I just want to say what a blessing it is to uh, have this conversation with my pastor and with, like, my congregation. <laughs> so this is really fun uh, for me to, to, to have this evening. Uh, my mom was born 1934. Uh, to, uh, was born into poverty, as you mentioned. Uh, was a market farmer, and he went wherever the work was, USA border, Mexico border, and uh, they just went where the work was. And she was an adventuresome little girl, though. Even uh, when she was just a little girl, 10 years old, 12 years old, she remembers going into town, and she remembers looking at the label on cans or clothes, and, and it would say, made in somewhere. And already, she was starting to think, oh, I'd love to go there someday. I would love to go to Argentina or Brazil or Europe, where it says, or Japan, where it was, where it was made. My dad, on the other hand, they grew up in that same region of Mexicali in Mexico, uh, his dad was uh, a banker. My mom's dad was the migrant farmer. My dad's dad was the banker. And so they had a little bit more resources, but he was an adventuresome kid too. Happened to be born on the US side, uh, USA side of the border, but he made a decision at 18 because he wanted to better himself. And he thought, mm -hmm. you know what, if I, if I claim my US citizenship, um, I think, and join the army, the GI Bill, I might be able to get an education. And he wanted to get an education. And so... Um, it was, uh, you can't imagine if you're in a Mexican family as a kid, you kind of turn your back on that citizenship and you become a citizen 
a lone citizen of the family of the United States. So he did that, joined the military, but his timing was a little uh, uh, interesting because what he didn't realize is that right after he enlisted in the military, the Korean War started. Uh, so he got shipped to the Korean War. And he served there uh, for three years in Japan and in Korea. Uh, and then came back, got his GI Bill, got his engineering degree through the GI Bill, came back home, married my mom, and in 61 years of marriage, talk about adventuresome, they moved 41 times. Before I celebrated my first birthday, I'd been to six countries, I've been to about 50 countries now, and, uh, and they just moved. They just, they, the, and my dad was an engineer, so he went wherever the projects were. I was born in the jungles of El Salvador because he was building a dam and a powerhouse there, and with no doctor assistance, I was born on his birthday 55 years ago. And, um, and, and, and I thought every family uh, moved every year. I thought that was normal. I didn't know any better, honestly. I had eight different schools before I graduated high school. All, all the military guys in here know. Yeah, you would know what I'm talking right? about. Like, you, I just thought that was normal. And then I married, you know, my wife met her and dated her one house her whole life. I was like, wow, I don't get that. But, um, but so... Uh, being a cross-cultural kid, growing up, a couple languages, and always being the new kid on the block, but being able to understand and connect to different cultures was training for me for what I'm doing now. To be able to go in and out of cultures, to be comfortable, and because my mom grew up in poverty, knows what it's like, was taught as a little girl on how to keep a dirt floor clean and level. It's interesting that she would describe it that way. She had one toy in her whole adolescence, uh, uh, a little toy doll, and that was her one toy uh, growing up. And um, in that ceremony that you were at, when Wes passed the baton to me, she came up to me afterwards and stood right in front of me, right in the auditorium, right here at New Life, and she didn't say a word. And I was like, Mom, are you okay? Or is it okay? You know? Um, and then she gave me a hug, pushed back, tried to get another word out, couldn't, three times tried to get a word out, couldn't. Finally, just hugged me tight, and in the language of her soul, said, which means, we'll talk later. So the next day, I went up to her, and I said, Mom, what's going on with that? What was going on there? Where, what was happening on the inside? And she said, you know, when someone uh, grows up in poverty, they never think it's going to be a benefit to their children. Mm. And yet I could see how me growing up in poverty keeping you involved in the life of the poor in all these developing countries that we lived not only impacted you in a positive way, but it became what God used to be central to your life calling. Yeah. And I had no words to explain my gratitude. And that's what I was trying to say to you mm. at that time. Yeah. So good. So good. I think it's uh, another fascinating story about your dad as he went over to fight in the Korean War in the 50s, I guess, and I'm, I'm guessing that's when he was there. And then fast forward to 1988, you're chosen to be a decathlete in the 1988 Seoul Olympics. Yeah. So your dad gets to go back yeah. to a country that he helped liberate and helped bring freedom to. In fact, when he left in uh, 1953, uh, uh, when he left, so this war zone, totally devastated city, and uh, some, you know, However many years later, from 53 to 88, 30, he comes back, didn't recognize a single thing except the shape of the Han River that went through Seoul. Mm. Everything was different. But the blessing to be able to see what God could do in a country over that time from when he left to when he saw it 
and the movement of Christ and the revival in the church there um, was, was an amazing thing. And actually, I went for an athletic experience, and it was awesome. It was, it was all of what I dreamed and hoped it would be, but my calling to serve the church happened there in Seoul. Yeah, you had a prayer meeting. Tell, tell, a that, prayer tell meeting. that story. So there was a pastor there, a pastor of the world's largest church. Actually, he had a prayer meeting for any athletes that uh, wanted to be prayed over before the Olympics. And I was, you know, giving up five inches and 25 pounds to the average decathlete. So I figured I needed all the prayer I could get. <laughs> and uh, this is not the body of your average decathlete. So I, I, I went to this prayer meeting and, and it was a blessing and all of that. But I heard the story at another seminar I got invited to at, at that evening. I went to a seminar uh, while I was there uh, for about two weeks uh, for the Olympics. And the seminar was on telling the story of what God did in South Korea. And how in those early years after the war, when the land was just completely devastated, the believers were begging and imploring God to visit their land, to heal their land, and to do a special thing in South Korea. And they, that prayer movement, which started out in a tent, has not stopped to this day. They are the most praying country I know, and that prayer movement has just around the clock, they just kept praying around the clock, God, visit our land, visit our land. And then uh, all of a sudden, it was like reading Acts 2, but like it happened in our time. There were signs, and there were miracles, and there were all sorts of amazing things that went on there in South Korea. And they went just from a handful of percentages of Jesus followers, in like a generation or two, they went to about 26, 20% Jesus followers. And at one point, the revival was so intense that there were more people being born, uh, there were more people coming to Christ than were physically being born in the hospitals. Can you imagine if in Colorado Springs, Mm -hmm. there were more people coming to Christ than being born in the hospitals? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be something? And I got to see that firsthand and was so, Lord, I want to be a part of a movement like that. I want to be a part of your, your kingdom work on earth, that more of what's up there would be true down here like you prayed. I want to be a part of a movement like that. And that's when I got my calling to serve the church. That was the real reason I went to the Olympics, I think. And uh, so fast forward, you ended up at the Willow Creek Association, amazing work around the world with some of the best leaders on the planet you got to rub shoulders with and be around. You wrote, an, uh, you wrote your, I think, your master's dissertation on the Willow Creek movement, and it actually uh, turned into a job for you, and yeah. uh, you begin to be the face of that movement that uh, for, for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of leaders have been impacted by the, that conference and by that movement, and now you're at uh, Compassion on the front line of the issue of poverty. I think one of the things that I wanted the men of New Life to hear from you, you you're an expert, and your organization is an expert on taking people from poverty to a place of thriving. Uh, and, and there's very few organizations on the, on the planet that are doing such good work as yours. And this is not a commercial for uh, com- compassion. I want you guys to catch the heart of what's possible here at our church as we get our hands dirty and engage with the real broken issues in places like Mexico, El Salvador, you're, you're where you were born, uh, Honduras, where I just came from, and Guatemala, where I've been many times, uh, places like Nicaragua, even into South America, but the Central American region. Can you tell us, first of all, how... Can you give us a picture of why it's so broken? Help us understand the problem. What's the real problem in Central America right now? Well, the mission of compassion is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. What I want you to hear about that is that we, are, we look like a child sponsorship organization because we do that. That's not what we are. 
We are a church-equipping organization, a church-equipping ministry. We believe that the strategy Jesus invented of discipleship through a local church, through the body of Christ, that that is, in fact, the most effective strategy to release anybody. Also, those that are in, impoverished economically, but that is the best strategy to release anybody in any circumstance um, uh, from poverty or other kinds of poverty in Jesus' name to live their full redemptive potential. Now, focus in on Latin America, which is about 40% of the 2 million children that we get to serve through, you know, 7,500 churches, and we only do our ministry in partnership with a local church, an indigenously led local church in a poor community. And we strive to make that community um, target communities that, that are the poorest of the poor. Uh, a phrase inside of Compassion, all our employees would recognize this, the neediest within our reach. The neediest within our reach. We want to start there. Our research says that our program is most effective the more poverty there is in a region. So um, lots of poverty in Latin America for sure. Um, uh, and one of the things that you might not be aware of when you talk to our leaders in Central America, especially the Northern Triangle of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, you could also call it the Violence Triangle. Did you know that in the top 10 uh, list of countries that are experiencing violent deaths, these three little tiny countries in Central America are in the top 10. You know who's number one in the world? Country of my birth, El Salvador. Amen. Most violent deaths per 100,000 in population, my country. And as I talked to the leaders and I said, well, how did this happen? It's a gang infested and every region, a gang kind of protection. If you want to do work in that region, you've got to pay protection money or you don't do work in that, in that part of the community. And they divvied it all up. What we didn't know is, is that when we, were, um, uh, when we were deporting appropriately those that were undocumented in the United States, and, it's, and, and I'm saying it's proper to have borders, so let me be clear about that, um, and, and, and you know, so that's a good thing to do. However, here's an unforeseen consequence of what happened when we deported undocumented. Who were the first group of people that we would deport? Amen. I heard it. Criminals. 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 That's right. Those were the first people that we would deport. And you would think everybody, would, well, that's a good thing, right? So we're getting rid of the people that have criminal records and they're not good for our society. So let's, let's deport them. So an unforeseen consequence of something that sounds like a, a good and proper thing to do and you know, likely is in terms of policy. However, here's what we didn't mean to do, but here's what happened. We exported the U.S. crime systems. To Central America. So they took what they learned here in LA and New York and Miami and they went down there and they executed on that system. And so now the gang system proliferated into these countries. And though we didn't intend to do it, we were a part of the problem there in these in these countries, and we talked to pastors, and the pastors talked to these gang leaders because they're all in the same community. They know each other. And they have They've earned the respect of these gang leaders because the gang leaders, actually many of them, don't want their children doing what they are doing right now. And so they've declared compassion no violent zones. If they're wearing their compassion shirt on the way to the church and on the way home, they're protected. They don't, you know, wear your compassion shirt, you're, you're good to go on that front. And the only way you can leave a gang is either through death or authentic conversion to Jesus. 
and they'll let you leave a gang if it's authentic conversion to Jesus. You know what happens if they discover it's not authentic? They'll kill you. How do they determine what's their, how do they determine what's Well, if, if, if you continue womanizing, if you continue, uh, your life expression is actually saying, that guy doesn't know Jesus. He hoodwinked us. And that's how he tried to get out of his gang responsibility and loyalty to us. And they'll, they'll, they'll kill them. So I was in Honduras, and you know this, uh, you're doing great work in Honduras, which, by the way, the Guatemalan church is much further advanced than the Honduran church, and you can tell the difference in both countries. Guatemala has its own set of problems, but Honduras is a completely different story with the violence that's happening, especially in the capital city of Tegucigalpa. When we landed there, I think we landed at 11 a.m., and the person who was hosting us said, we need to go right now into this neighborhood because it's the only time of the day that it's safe to take you there. Well, the first stop, he took us to a church where a pastor is rescuing uh, young men and boys and women off the streets of Tegucigalpa. Think about this. It's about a million and a half pe uh, people in Tegucigalpa, maybe two million. 200,000 homeless kids, kids, 200,000 homeless kids are on the streets of the capital city of Honduras. And we wonder, uh, so the MS-13, which is by far one of the most violent gang entities in Central America, that's where they're recruiting these kids. And so this church, through your help and through other organizations' help, uh, are rescuing these kids, getting them a place to stay, and they're putting such a dent and the uh, available workforce for this MS-13 that they're actually being targeted, that the pastor now has to have protection when he gets into the neighborhood because they're doing such good work in these neighborhoods that they're robbing them of, of mules and, and carriers of drugs. And I, when I, I came out of that story, I've heard that story, but once you see that story yeah. at play, t so tell us, tell us what does it mean to rescue a kid out of poverty and what does that do for his family, yeah. her family, and, and what are the, the generational impacts yeah. that happen when you rescue a kid? At the, core, at the core of the program and the curriculum, it's like I want to say the curriculum is love. The curriculum is, is, is discipleship of children in a church during their most at-risk years of their life. There are a lot of other organizations that do community development kinds of things, which is great. That's what my father did. My father went to provide electricity, clean water, power, irrigation systems. That's what my dad did as an engineer. I'm an engineer. I love that. I love that that was my dad's um, uh, profession. But my dad and my mom were always involved in the local church, always. And I got to see the life transformation impact of a local church that's working right compared to what electricity would do right. to transform the heart of someone. Good to have electricity. Good to have infrastructure. But change... Infrastructure doesn't change hearts. But what's cool is that changed hearts create amazing engineers and amazing police people and amazing politicians, and, and that does change the community. So that's why I love that it's about changing the life of the child. And so it is a very relational, intensive thing. Uh, compared to just the normal child sponsorship in terms of just general industry, it's about 100 times more relational intensity because that's how discipleship happens. You know, the fire teams. I mean, that's, discipleship is right here. It's relational. So it is a purely relational strategy to look at the child's uh, physical well-being, their uh, emotional well-being, their cognitive well-being, and their spiritual well-being. It's the full gospel with that child during the toughest times of their life. And for every child, uh, it lifts about 10 people up around them. When a child's in the program, it lifts the, the whole family up. 
and people that extended family that are really around that child. One of the things, that me before I forget this, one of the things I heard over and over again in Guatemala and Honduras is the reason that uh, these poor families will have a lot of children is, is obviously there's a birth control issue, they, there's issues like that, but they, they also want to have a lot of children because they're hoping one of them will make it. Yeah. They're, they're putting their hopes on one of their kids breaking through that poverty cycle, and then the responsibility on that child is to lift the entire family. And that's what you're seeing that's at these true. centers. We visited a center in Guatemala, uh, some of the work you're doing in Guatemala, and the kids there, are, their eyes are full of life. They're walking under your property, and they're living in places that, uh, that none of us would want our kids to live. But when they showed up on your property with the ch local churches there, you could just see the difference, the radiant hope that was coming out of their lives. What, can you give us one story of a, of a kid lifting their family? Do you have a story you could share with us? Yeah, there's um, one guy. He was a beneficiary. Uh, he's from Uganda. And uh, terrible story, brother died. Just a horrible, the normal kinds of things that happen when you're living in that kind of abject, extreme poverty. And this little kid, this little kid gets discipled in a church, understands that there's love in this world with his name on it, and the author is God, and that church is the expression of Christ to him. And this little guy grew up, and then he was such a high-potential little kid, he went into the leadership development program that we have for those that are 18 and above that we had back when, when he was at that age. And then he went on, got his university education, and then beyond that, he just got his doctorate a few months ago. Wow. But he didn't get his education uh, and, and come to the United States and leave his country. He got his education, and then he went back to his country. And now this pastor, he's a pastor now, but this pastor is pastoring and ministering to about 4,000 other pastors. Mm. So one beneficiary whose life was changed is not only changing his family's life, and he's able to care for his family, no question, he's got that covered, but he's now pastoring pastors. So as he would get his education in his master's and his doctorate degree, he would just pass it right on to these thousands of pastors in Eastern Africa. His name is Richmond Wandera, and, and he is, he's one of the most amazing individuals I know. And if you talked with him, you would never dream that he came from where he came from. Well, one, this is, the reason we're telling you this story is because oftentimes we'll see things on the news or national media, and it just seems like too big a problem for any of us to really fix. But, and, and if we think like that, we actually probably will get discouraged and not get involved. But it's, it's easy to get involved with one child, one person. And my, Pam and I have been sponsoring a compassion child, two children in El Salvador now for 12 years, and getting their letters and writing them back and hearing their story and getting their photos it gives us a sense that we're participating in a much bigger vision. You're, you're caring for a hundred, think about this, they're caring for a hundred thousand children right now in Guatemala and Honduras. I think it's 112,000 total children in those two countries. And I want you to, that's just, a, that's 112,000 families with exponential multiple, multiplying effect that's going to happen in all of those homes. And, and guys, it's only going to take one or two generations for this, to, we'll start to see political, uh, economic, and social benefits of getting involved in one kid's life. And so all of us can do that. All of us can skip the Starbucks line a couple of times a, a week and, and help a kid. It's 38 bucks a month at Compassion. I mean, that's, that's just something most of us in Briargate can do without it hurting us. And I, I'm grateful. 
Here's what's interesting about the, about the reality of our world today. There are a billion children living on less than $5.50 a day. A billion. And that is overwhelming. Like, a billion, what could I do? But here's the amazing good news. I'm more interested in this next number. Best we can tell, and really only God can tell, really, but best we can tell from a human perspective, there are about over a half a billion Jesus followers in this world. I mean, they say two billion Christians, but a lot of that stuff is label stuff, like, like authentic. As best we can tell, half a billion Jesus followers. The church can do this. The church can actually fulfill its calling as Jesus gave it. Two children per one believer. Two children per one believer, and we can take care of the billion. Yeah. So that, that's, the, that's the more hopeful news to me. Yeah, I love that. Now, I, one of the things that I want to make sure we have time for, because I think this is what we're about to talk about next, can be helpful to everyone in the room. You are leading an organization with a tremendous amount of responsibility. I can imagine it's a tremendous amount of criticism, a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, there is financial pressure for the organization. There's vision that you have to hold for the organization. And I want to hear how you have kept your heart. Has, you've kept your heart so pure. When I'm around... When, this guy is the same in my office as he is on the stage, and that's one of the reasons I want him up here in front of you. This guy is one of the most authentic. Every lunch I've had, every meeting I've had with him, there is a tenderness, a compassion. It's not contrived. It's not manufactured. It's, it's, it's something genuine happening in your soul that has always made you attractive to me and other people. How do you keep your heart so tender before God when you see poverty at its worst and you're leading an organization with so much pressure on your life? How do you stay so tender before God? There's a phrase that I have in my mind and it uh, goes like this. Life and leadership is hard. Life and leadership alone is impossible. And um, I have to do life in community. That's why these fire teams are so important. Find your way into one of these things. I remember doing mentoring groups with pastors, 30 at a time. We'd have a psychologist there, and it was kind of a share all kinds of settings there for a few days in these mentoring sessions. And the night before the start, we would always ask them the same question. Um, how many of you have a friend that you can be fully disclosing with? Just one. These are pastors. On average, roughly, about 70% would say they didn't have even one friend that they could be fully disclosing with, 70%. You can't do life and leadership over the long haul alone. We weren't meant to do it alone. We weren't designed to do it alone as people. We certainly weren't designed to do it alone as leaders. And leadership, and that's why the Bible says, hey, don't, don't be quick to get into teaching leadership roles. Hold on there. Be sober-minded about that. And I've always been more on the reluctant side to, to take on more responsibilities and because I know the weight that comes with that. And, and in my experience, as I've seen life and experienced it myself, as you lead over the long haul, you'll either end up with a cynical heart, a hard heart, or a soft heart. And how you design your life will take you down one of those paths. Go over to three again, a hard heart. Cynical heart, a hard heart, or, or a, a soft tender, heart, or a, a soft tender heart. heart. A soft heart. So de t describe the difference between a hard heart and a cynical heart, because some people may think those are the same, but it's not. The, the, the hard heart is like void of feeling. It's just that. It's hard. Doesn't feel anything. At least the cynical heart 
is feeling cynicism, is feeling emotion, is, 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 is feeling the outrage of, of hypocrisy that they see and consistency that they see. There's still a sense of, of, of inner outrage. The hard heart is a stone. They're like they're seared conscious. They don't feel. They're numb. They don't care. They're, they're void of life. And, and the cynical heart ends up being a really a stone, a heart of stone. And I wanted to have a, a soft heart. And I've said this many times before. If I can't do leadership that allows me to have a soft heart before God, I'll quit. I just will. Because that's not worth it. And, I, and the staff members that are here know that I say over and over again, the most important contribution you will make to the kingdom of heaven mm. is not anything you do, but who you're becoming. Yes. So yes. I just, I can't stress that enough. Now, some people have interpreted that as I've gotten feedback, like, oh, you don't care about results. You know, it's like, whatever, you know, I don't care about results. Doing doesn't matter. Doing matters a lot. Yes. You give a cup of cold water to someone that's thirsty, you clothe the naked, you feed the poor. They're, it's very important. What did Jesus call the servant that buried their talent and did nothing with it? Yeah. Called them wicked. Doing for the Lord, responding to callings, these are precious things. They're precious things. They're very important. However, they're not more important than being in Christ. Yes. The person I'm becoming, what I do needs to be a natural fruit of who I'm becoming on the inside. Because here's what happens if you start doing, outpacing your becoming on the inside. You'll start pretending. Yeah, that's so and good. And pretending so good. is death to the soul. Because now you're not living in truth. And then all of a sudden you start to compromise here and compromise there. And I, wanna, I warn our staff all the time, it's even more intensely tempting to cut corners on your soul because the cause is so much, it's so precious. Yeah. How much more precious there, of a cause is there than to serve children in extreme poverty? Mm. It's a very precious cause. So because of that, I'll be tempted to let the cause become my God. And there's only one person that is worthy of being on the throne of your life. No cause is more precious than Christ. Christ is it, period. Now, if I'm in Christ, do you think I'll do things for Christ? Yes. Of course I will. Will I give it my best? Will I give it my best sacrifice and give my all? Of course I will. But it will be a fruit of who I'm becoming, not the other way around. Yeah, so good, so good, amen. So, a lot. Of, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, "How do you? What do you do every day?" Oh, yeah. What every day? This has to be a choice. Every day, uh, I, I told a young pastor. He said, "Pastor Freddie, what's your goal for the? You know, you're I'm 52. What's your goal to at the end of your pastoral career?" And I said, "To be fully human." And fully in love with Jesus and my wife to like me and my kids to want to come home. And I really don't have any other ambitions outside of yeah. that to keep that centered in my life. But that requires you to do something every day to get to that spot. So tell me what you do. A lot of these guys are wanting to know, well, what's the secret sauce? And there may not be a secret sauce, but what do you do every day? I loved it when you said that statement. Your daughter was behind the camera, and you remember that's when you said it in the there, service. Actually, my daughter's right there. But she's right still now. there. She she's is the only girl right. in the room there right now. Is my daughter, <laughs> and she, but she's surrounded awesome. by brothers, right? <laughs> surrounded by dads in this room, right? 
That was awesome. Jesus actually working the camera tonight. Right? Use the skinny lens on me and the fat one on him. <laughs> so have you heard of this thing called spiritual disciplines? Sure you have. Um, so I used to think of spiritual disciplines because I grew up in a Jesus-loving family and prayer and fasting and solitude and, and uh, uh, you know, being a part of the assembly of the believers and not forsaking that. And so I grew up, you know, Bible reading from when I was a little kid, you know, been just going through the Bible as a little kid over and over and over again. So those were disciplines. But, but something happened when I was about 10 years into leadership and I had a conversation with someone. It totally opened my vision for spiritual disciplines from this to like a whole new world. And it was a definition around spiritual gifts. So if you got something to write, write this down or sear it into your mind. But a spiritual discipline can be, in addition to those wonderful classic ones that we all know about, a spiritual discipline is any activity that you have dedicated to the Lord to help you do one of two things. Stop the natural flow of sin in your life or increase the supernatural flow of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Any activity that you dedicate to one of those purposes. Stop the bad stuff, grow the good stuff. Any activity. So I got a whole litany of activities that are my training program for my heart to help me do what I cannot do through trying alone. Let me say that again. Spiritual disciplines are to help you do what you cannot do through trying alone. Mm. Let me illustrate that. How many of you have run a marathon before? Raise your hand. Great. Pretty good number. <laughs> Love that. We're in Colorado. In, in, in Illinois, the number would have been half that. So um, that's where I used to live. Um, they don't do many marathons there. Uh, so, so that's awesome. Now, um, those of you that have not ever done a marathon, do you think you could do one today? Like we started right now? No, don't think so. Probably not. Um, however, those of you that have done marathons before, you pretty much know that if you, any, pretty much almost any of us in this room, if we were to enter into a life of training, you'd be able to do in eight months what you cannot do through trying alone. Here's our cycle with sin. We sin, we feel bad. I'm going to try to not sin. I try to not sin, but then I fail and then I shame myself. Now I'm going to try harder. Because that's the solution, right? I tried. This time I'm going to doubly try. I'm going to doubly try, and then I fail, and then I doubly shame. Well, now I'm going to triply try, because that's going to be the solution, and then I triply fail, and then I triply shame. And the shame cycle goes on and on and on, and it never stops. So take the energy of trying and say, no, I'm going to enter into a life of training. And when I was a decathlete, I, I trained with other decathletes. Our training programs were different. I'm a different... I had different strengths, different weaknesses than the other guy. So my training was custom to me. And our coach had a custom training program for each of us based upon our weaknesses and strengths. No difference in the spiritual world. So for a lot of reasons I don't need to discuss, but I have processed for many hours in the counseling office. And uh, I had an issue with people-pleasing. And people-pleasing is death in life, but it's also death in leadership. If you're leading and you're just letting other people, you know, determine your opinion, that's not leadership. So I had to deal with this people-pleasing thing. Where did it come from? And, you know, you know, it came from being the new guy always on the block and wanting to be liked by the new community and the new friends and the new city and all that. So I developed a, a habit of people-pleasing. So then I had to start developing habits to unlearn the habit of people-pleasing. 
So, so this is actually a spiritual discipline of mine. Um, and, and these are like pre-decided disciplines that I've already decided. Because life will give you a lot of pop quizzes. And if you try to do the right decision when you get a character pop quiz coming your way and you're not ready for it, you'll probably fail at it. Yeah, that's right. So you got to pre-decide how you're going to handle the character pop quizzes that come your way. So you don't have to make the decision in the moment, in the heat of the battle. Make it ahead of time when you're in, the good, in a good mind and, and strength. So one of my deals is when I am disrespected, when I am shed in bad light in a, in a community, I let it go. And I feel the sting of people not thinking that very well of me. And probably they're thinking more accurately of me um, than I would want them to know. So in those settings, when I'm not shedding good light, I let it hang, I let it stay, and I let the sting of them not esteeming me well, I let that be felt in my soul. And you know what happens to the sting? Over time, the sting turns into joy. Because I, I, I was able to say, if, but that one time, I was not able to be succumbed by the God of people-pleasing. Mm. And I let Jesus be Jesus in that moment. And I'm no longer a slave to people-pleasing. I could list out to you, there's another one in my leadership. Because of my position, I get a lot of uh, entitlements that come my way. I, I, don't, I don't like them, but it kind of comes with a position of uh, uh, people that do things for me or... or, or or just things that come with the position of, of being the president in an organization. And I've been the leader of an organization now 26 years, the last six with compassion, but previously in the other one. And, and so I have to have a discipline because I'm afraid of what entitlement will do for my soul. I'm afraid of what celebrity might do for my soul. There's another deadly one for, for the soul is celebrity. You start believing things that you really you shouldn't. And so what I do is I purposely predecide that I got to be in situations when I am fasting from being entitled of anything. So true story, grew up Southern Baptist, wife Southern Baptist, dancing was not a part of our lives. No drinking, <laughs> no dancing, like none of that. So I didn't. My daughter got married um, about six years ago, and she said, Dad, I know you don't dance, but I'm telling you, 90 seconds you're going to have to dance with me. So figure it out, but you're dancing with me for 90 seconds. And I oh, man, Esther, seriously? So, so my wife signed us up at a Fred Astaire studio to learn how to at least get through 90 seconds. And I did. I took my three lessons. I learned how to do the 90 seconds, and I did the 90 seconds. Great. But here's what happened. My wife fell in love with dance. I didn't. But my wife did. <laughs> and so, so she started taking dance lessons that have continued to this day. And, and, and in this particular studio that's on Academy, um, she um, has taken it upon herself to help renovate the place. And um, guess who her free labor is? <laughs> I'm an engineer. So I'm her free labor. She designs it and tells me what to do. And so, you know, I, I was in there, and I've renovated these toilets that hadn't been changed in forever. They're broken, and I'm in there in the muck of these toilets and renovating these things. And I wear grubby clothes. I'm doing this grubby work, and the people in the studio don't know who I am. It's kind of funny because I get treated like the Hispanic help. <laughs> <laughs> and it's awesome. It's awesome because I'm like, I need to have the discipline of fasting from entitlement. 
that my position gives me mm. so that, I, so that I, I, I stay grounded. Mm. So I could just give you, I could go on and on about, you know, even like, like lust. And, you know, I'm, here's another little discipline, going down the freeway. And, and you know, sometimes there are billboards with, with some, some, you know, ladies that are scantily clad. And you can kind of tell your peripheral vision, you know, uh, Hooters ad or whatever, yeah. billboard. And you're driving down and you can kind of tell in your peripheral vision. In the next two seconds, you have a decision to make. You will take the small emotional hit and look at that billboard and take that little emotional hit. Nobody's going to know except God and you. But your eyes just went, and bring it back. So... You, you, can, you can do that, or you can, I said, you know what? That's not life-giving to me, um, and I feel bad about it afterwards. So a little discipline I have, it's bounce the eyes. Peripheral vision gets it there, bounce the eyes the other way, and, and, and just don't take that little hit. And here's the beauty of training. Here's the beauty of a training life. When you start training with a 15-pound dumbbell, and you train with that, uh, what happens a month later? Can you do it with 20 pounds? Sure you can. And if you do it with 20 pounds, what happens a month after that? You can do 40. And then you do that, and then you grow. You actually can grow in your strength in these areas. There is hope to move away from addiction. There is hope to not, be the, to not let lust be your king or people-pleasing be your king or, or whatever. In charge of your development, in charge of your formation, Jesus is the only one that could be in charge of your formation. And, and let's not let these other things be in charge of our formations. But you got to start training to develop the muscles of abstinence to the bad stuff and muscles of engagement in the good stuff. Because of leadership, and there's a lot of hard stuff that comes with that, I'm, I was, I've historically struggled with joy. Um, years ago, you would ask me, what brings you joy? I couldn't tell you. It was like a blank look. I was like, I'm fulfilled. To some extent, I'm fruitful here and there. But what brings you joy? So I, that was a bell ringer for me. So I sat down and literally did this, this, start writing down, what brings me joy? As simple as that sounds. And then I realized, you know, I'm an engineer for a reason. I actually like building things and fixing things and remodeling things. So my wife likes designing projects. Back to the other deal. And I like her doing that. She comes up with projects for me. And doing work together with my wife around a project brings me joy. I mean, that just it brings me joy. So in my time off, I might have come from a trip or whatever. I don't mind loading up and going and fixing whatever in the studio or at home or a friend's house or whatever. You know, and I love doing that, going to a friend's house and say, you know, um, that thing, last time I was here, it was broke. And now I'm here again, it's still broke. You want me to fix that? You know, having you over. I, I, yeah, yeah. When you, <laughs> when your wife runs out of projects, there's a few of us who love to have you over for dinner really soon. There's actually a friend you and I both know, <laughs> and the faucet of the shower, you grab and it falls down. I'm like, come on, guy, like let's fix this thing, you know. But anyway, we digress. I want, I want you to, I want, I want the guys in the room to respond to this, and I, I know for me, I'm thinking this week of how many times I've, I've chosen to be cynical. And how many times this week I've, I felt my heart getting hard 
and how often this week the Lord was inviting me into a place of tenderness. And I feel like in this, a lot of guys in the room are relating to what you just said, that, we, that we're probably leaning toward being hardened and hardened and cynical. But I think every man in the room, we don't want to end our lives like that. We don't want to be the old crusty guy that, that there's no joy in our lives. And tonight, guys, I just I think we need to respond to this man's invitation. And I think the Holy Spirit's doing something in this room right now that if we would just respond to it and just ask the Holy Spirit to come and check our heart. And I, I think the first decision I need to make, and I'm being honest in front of all of you, that I have to decide to guard my heart above all else to guard my heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And tonight, I just, as you were saying that, I just felt, I think some of us have let our guard down. And we, we don't realize how important it is to guard the condition of our soul. And so I'm just going to ask you, would you, can we just all stand in the room tonight and just stand for a few minutes? And I'm going to ask Jimmy tonight to uh, my friend and our brother. He's our brother. He's a member of our church. He's our brother. He's a, a co-laborer uh, in our city together with us. And I'm just going to ask the guys in the room, would you just uh, close your eyes for a moment and... Ask yourself this question. And really, only you and the Lord can answer this question. I can't answer the question for you. And probably the people next to you can't. But let me ask you a question tonight. What is the condition of your heart tonight? Are you hardened? Are you cynical? Or do you want a tender heart? And I'm just going to ask you, Jimmy, would you just pray a blessing over us tonight? Would you just... Guys, invite, this is a moment where we should invite the Holy Spirit to come. Just say, come Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer. We pray that prayer here at New Life Church almost every Sunday. Come Holy Spirit. That's not a prayer begging God to come to us. It's a prayer reminding us of how much we need him, of how much of God we need and how much we need to come near to him. So would you just pray over us tonight and pray for the same work that the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart that we've done in ours and just that we would never, that we'd be men marked by tenderness. Let's pray for us tonight. Gracious Heavenly Father, what comes to mind right away are your words. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? There's nothing more precious than the soul that you've given to us. And Father, we often don't take care of it. We often don't put you in charge of its formation and protection. We think we can do a better job. And so we fire you from that role and we assume that role, even as Christ followers. We know far too often than we would like to admit in front of everyone, we put other things in charge of the formation and protection of the health of our soul. And so Jesus tonight, all across this room, Father, I can sense that we together want to put you in charge of the yes. formation of our soul for the protection of its health. Mm. And that, Father, knowing that as we allow your Holy Spirit to be the glue yes. that pulls all the dimensions of our soul together, our heart and our mind, our soul, our body all of those dimensions of the soul, Father, just to be glued together by your Holy Spirit. Yes. You're the master designer. You made us. You know what you want for us. And so, Father, as the creator, as our leader and forgiver and master designer, Father, we ask you even now to 
enter into our, yes. our, our soul, yes. our heart, and Father, bind us together, pull yes. things together that we might have integrity before you and that we would live life every day out of that kind of a healthy, strong, vibrant soul. It's amazing to me that the scriptures say that there's nothing physically attractive that would make people desire Jesus, that it wasn't his physical attra- uh, features that attracted people to him. And I love that because you, I, I guess you did it because you didn't want there to be any confusion about what is most important. And what made Jesus the most attractive human ever was because of the condition of his soul. Yes. He was one with you and people saw that and they wanted that we all want that father i'm so sorry that we put ourselves in charge of it more often than we should and so father tonight together we say before you we are firing ourselves from being in charge of our formation yes and we are putting you back in that lead role of our formation father let the holy spirit reign within us let the holy spirit completely have his way in all of our life in every corner in that addiction part in that disobedient part in that obstinate part in the hard parts in the cynical parts father we invite you into all those parts of our soul yes and so together father let this be an orchestra of of a a beautiful um a beautiful thing where this group of men together and one daughter that this group of people, Father, are consecrating ourselves anew yes. to allow you to make us what you want us to be. Mm. Kingdom bringers yes. to Colorado Springs and beyond. Kingdom bringers in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Stay up here for me. I want to pray for you. I'm going to want you guys to uh, point your hands toward Pastor. Uh, I call him Pastor Jimmy because he is pastoring an organization, but... But this guy is at the tip of the spear, and he is, he's a target. And, but we're going to cover him tonight as brothers and pray over him. And we're going to pray over, if you work for Compassion, raise your hand. We're going to lay hands on all of you. If, you. if you work for Compassion, you see one of these guys, put your hands up. Go put your hands on these guys. They're doing hard work. And when you care for the poor, you're doing spiritual battle and warfare. You're redeeming futures. You are reclaiming uh, spiritual ground when you take care of the poor. And so we're going to pray over these men in a room. And Daniel, would you just lead us in a prayer? Pray over Jimmy. Pray over the men and, uh, that work at Compassion. And let's pray God's blessing on them. Point Father, your hand toward these guys. Father, we pray for the wisdom of God. Yes. James 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it graciously without finding fault. And Jimmy lives his life in humility. Yes. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd open yes. the windows of heaven over his life and pour out wisdom pour out discernment, pour out Holy Spirit creativity. I pray that they would see solutions that nobody else is seeing. I pray that they would have favor in sectors that no one else is having favor in. I pray, Lord, that you would cause uh, what Psalm 1 said to be true, that everything you touch will prosper. And Lord, where the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, where the enemy comes to trip up, where the enemy comes to try to topple our lives over so that our work stops, I pray Jude 23 over you, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne of God with great joy. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who will keep Jimmy and keep all these guys that work at Compassion from falling. 
You're going to keep them secure. You're going to make it so they can show up at the end of their lives and be wholesome and be vibrant and be men of God. Lord, thank you that you are causing them to flourish. And we pray, Lord, that you would go before them, that you would be the one who surrounds them with favor, that you'd be the one who opens doors that no man can shut. And where they encounter difficulty in countries that are trying to run them out or countries that are trying to stonewall them, we pray in the name of Jesus that all opposition would topple over. For the sake of these children, Lord, we pray that the the kingdom of God would go forward through Compassion International. And, Lord, we pray that that you would do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all they could ask or think. They have two million kids right now. Lord, we pray for multiple tens of millions. Lord, we pray that you would exponentially lead them into the next bit of the future that you have for them because you desire to fight for these children. And so, Lord, we commission compassion to go afresh, to stand in defense in the name of Jesus of these children. And so we pray, Lord, bless them and keep them and make your face to shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Lord, lift your countenance on them and grant them peace, we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Come on. That was rich. That was worth the price of admission, right? Such a good night. Thank you so much, Jimmy and Pastor Brady. Hey, as we bring in this in for a landing, one, one last thing. I want to invite all of our fire team leaders to come forward. Uh, one of the things that I, I just do not want to see is that if you came in here uh, thinking, I need some guys in my life, I would hate for you to leave Uh, without having changed anything. And I just want to tell you, men, that there is no reason for any of us here at New Life to go at it alone. All over our city, we've got groups of men, these fire teams meeting. We've got about 50 guys right now throughout our city leading these groups. And there is a place for you. There is a place for you to get lodged into a group of men and to grow. And so uh, you see uh, these guys up front. And so before you leave, if you need prayer for anything, no matter what's going on in your life, maybe it's something with your marriage, maybe it's something with your job or a relationship, don't leave before you come. And just let a man stand with you and pray for you personally. Or maybe you want to come and just ask questions about their fire team. Just don't leave before taking that next step and leaning in to brotherhood, all right? And so, Father, I thank you for every one of these men. You know them. They are marked with your spirit. And so fill them with your joy and peace. And Father, every day, may we be men who hear the voice of the Spirit, who have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that's courageous enough to say yes to follow. In Jesus' name, everybody says amen. Hey, great to see you guys. We'll see you soon.